The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Slightly different experience than football. <laughs> but surprisingly, I think it's important to... Uh, have a sense of the practice as being quite amazing and engaging. It's uh, easy, especially now in our culture where meditation is everywhere, it's, it's pretty easy for us to hear and think about meditation as something to chill out, something we do to calm down, to smooth out the mind and body after a rough day of running around doing this and that or having difficult interactions and okay I'll go home I'll soothe the mind with my meditation practice but uh, if you practice for a little bit and follow the instructions you know that although sometimes it does feel quite healing quite beautiful in that inner sense and that sense of inner peace and calm. Other times it's it's quite uh, overwhelming, the intensity of the practice, what comes up, what's seen. In a way, if we're doing the practice correctly, the whole system becomes profoundly sensitive, the mind and body. And it doesn't go away when the sit ends. You know, we bring that sensitivity out into the world. It's as if every sight, every sound, every sensation, every emotion, every thought has a little bit more brightness. <clears throat> and it can be overwhelming, especially if what's arising in terms of our sensations and our sights and our sounds is unpleasant. But it's even intensely pleasant things can be overwhelming intense. So in a way, uh, getting on board with this practice where we, on the one hand, are developing sensitivity, we're developing the qualities of mind that allows the mind, supports the mind's sensitivity, and then we're using this deepening, strengthening sensitivity to notice especially the mind, and uh, it can be quite disturbing. <laughs> One of the first real insights in practice is to notice how out of control the mind is and how we can't really control it or make it behave. And actually trying to you know, hold down the mind or make it behave, it's a little bit like... Uh, you know, if you've had that experience being in a large classroom with young children or teenagers are probably any age, but I've had more experience with younger students. And uh, there's a tipping point where you lose all authority and it's sort of the mob reigns and whatever's sort of going on, that's, that's what everybody else is attending to. And it's a, it's a really uneasy feeling, especially because you're getting paid to maintain control. 
And this is sometimes what we experience in the mind. It's actually an insight. It's not a problem. It's a useful thing to see because it begins to chip away at this idea, this false idea and view that this is my mind. But if it were my mind, it would do you know, what it's asked to do and stop doing what it's told not to do. But that's actually not our experience. The mind is simply playing out its own conditions, causes and conditions. Now I could, if I worked hard at it, just kept keep telling myself that whatever the mind is doing is what I wanted it to do. And so then it can still feel like a personal process, like it's my mind, I'm doing what I want to do. But when we really look, and when we cultivate mindfulness, which is a more hands-off viewing of the mind, at least in moments, we realize how the mind has its own trajectory. It's following one thing after another, as as is its nature. And it's the same thing we see playing out everywhere. In the mob of the classroom, or you watch your cat or your dog, or you watch a group of people over there, or you watch the weather. But whatever we observe in that honest, balanced, clear way, we'll see that it is simply the natural unfolding of things, causes and conditions. We've been, uh, in the last number of weeks, talking about this particular talk the Buddha gave, called the Satipatthana Sutta, the Discourse on Mindfulness, or the talk on the ways of establishing mindfulness in life, in our minds, in our lives. And in that talk, the Buddha emphasizes that if we're going to be mindful, we need to begin with a, a power, he calls it ardency. It's like, I care about this life enough, coming out of this basic goodness, I care about this life enough that I'm going to do something with my mind. I'm not going to just let my mind, the tendencies of my mind, sort of do the next thing, following our habit energy. I'm going to instead, because I care about this life, I'm going to do something with this mind and see if I get anything from it. Because we want to be happy. We want to be safe in a real way, not in an imagined way, or <clears throat> feeling safe because we're, we've distracted ourselves from danger. That's not real safety, because it depends on being distracted. So we really want to be safe knowing things as they are, being really connected, honest, awake. We want to be safe in that context, not in being disconnected, in our denial. So we have this force of the heart that's willing to go against its habits. And if we get, if we're fortunate, we get the instruction, we'll take that willingness to go against your habits and do something different, like track your moment-to-moment experience, because it will shift things. So we do that. But we need to do that. It's not enough to think about it. We actually have to make the shift. Hey, Tom, would you uh, turn down the fan? It's that middle switch in the bottom, and it's that little thing on the side. There's a little... Yeah, it's on a high speed. There you go. Thanks. 
So we need to, <clears throat> and it really shifts everything because we're using the mind in a different way. Normally our mind is on the level of, this is what I think is going on, what should I do? You know, I, what should I do to hold on to the good things or get rid of the bad things or make my life different than it is? So we're really operating on the level where there's some idea, some story we have about who I am and what's going on, and we either like that story about who I am, what's going on, or we don't, and then we think about what we should do about it, and then we our choice, our response in that moment really comes from that story, whatever the story sort of suggests. So instead of that, we're training the mind, we're taking this ardency, this willingness because we care to do something, and and this is not easy. We're leaving behind the story. It's like leaving behind our most important weapon or most important protection. And we're training the mind to track the mind-body experiences moment by moment by moment. It's really difficult. That's why we start with a, a relatively safe environment. We come to a meditation center or we find a quiet time at home to sit where we won't be bothered. We don't have anything we absolutely have to do. And we, we practice putting down the story by feeling the sensations of the body. Because you can't do both. It seems like you can, but you can't actually do both. So if we're really connecting with the actual experience of sitting or the actual experience of breathing in, breathing out, then we've radically let go of being a guy, doing this, living this kind of life. Those thoughts, those ideas fall into the background and even in moments disappear completely. And there's just breathing in and the knowing of it and breathing out and the knowing of it or hearing a sound and the knowing of it or feeling sensation in the knee and the knowing of it. And this allows for a different kind of wisdom to arise. So now the mind is understanding like how experience and how mental stress, the mind, the heart, the body getting bound up, it's really seeing how that arises in an elemental way. It's like uh, the sen- we see the sense of me not liking the sensations in my knee. We see it take birth because there we are aware of the breath coming in, aware of the breath going out, knowing the breath coming in, knowing the breath going out, and then something happens, like there's pain in the knee, and the mind attends to it, the mind knows that it's unpleasant, the mind personalizes the unpleasantness of the sensation, the mind has a thought, the mind identifies with the thought, you know, I hate this knee pain, why is this happening to me, and then on and on like that, and all of a sudden, there's a person here who's got a big problem. Like, I'm in the middle of a 30-minute set, and my knee really hurts, and I don't want to move. I don't know what to do, you know. I'm so bad at this. I should just sneak out. So, if we're being mindful, we see the birth, because that person didn't exist 10 seconds ago. But through the causes and conditions, all of a sudden we see how the suffering person comes to be. 
And then if we continue to be mindful and we're just observing that whole sense of me hating the pain in my knee, why did I decide to come? We see that mental spinning, the proliferation of thought. We feel the pain. We see that dynamic where the, the pain, the, the physical sensations and the recognition of the painfulness of those physical sensations triggers thinking and the thinking triggers tension around the pain, kind of a physical, mental resistance, and how that tightness there triggers more thinking, and the thinking triggers more tightness, and there's that feedback loop, and it's like we're going to hell. We see it. in that, And the thing is, in a sit, in the context of a formal meditation period, there's no distraction. So this little dynamic, which, you know, in the middle of a busy workday, it might not even stand out, just sort of, dynamic with physical pain might not stand out because next to the terror of losing your job if you don't get this project done it's not so big or the hope of getting a promotion and the excitement around that this little dynamic of the pain in the knee doesn't stand out so much but in the context of a sit it really is huge and we see it and we see it and then because of the instructions we've gotten 100 and 200 and 300 10,000 times like it's just this being known. It's not personal. We see that whole dynamic, and we realize, well, those are just thoughts being known. And if there's an emotion like feeling helpless with the physical pain, oh, that feeling of helplessness is just that emotion being known. And if there are any painful sensations of throbbing or burning in our knee, those are just sensations being known. And if there's any judgment about being a lousy meditator, that's just judging being known. So the mind radically simplifies it, and it's like a house of cards that just falls. That whole experience of being somebody trapped with my mind and the painful sensations and the not liking of the painful sensations and the embarrassment of having to keep moving my body and the judgment of how stupid this practice is and all of that whole entanglement and difficulty, it can fall away very quickly. The pain, the knee pain may still be there, but there's nothing else, no construction, fabrication around it. It's not a problem. And so we can, in the context of a sit, we can see the birth of a suffering being, and we can see the, the death, the dissolution, the falling apart of that suffering being. And in a good sit, we can see this birth and death dozens of times, where some little thought or memory or some pain in the body or somebody sniffling next to us or some disturbing sound outside or some nice peace that we're getting in the practice can be the trigger for mental proliferation, which sets in motion this dynamic where the tension that's related to the thinking triggers more thinking, and the thinking triggers more tension, and all of a sudden we've created a hell, and then hopefully if we're practicing at some point, the mind recognizes that all the different components of that experience of hell are just something being known. It's thinking being known, seeing being known, feeling sensations being known, and there's this natural deconstruction of the whole experience. The experience of suffering, mental suffering, 
is a fabrication. It's like uh, one of the great um, chroniclers of uh, the Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha over the centuries, several hundred years after the time of the Buddha, coined this phrase, suffering is, but no sufferer can be found. So clearly, this is useful, because clearly we know that suffering is, right? Is there anybody in the room who hasn't directly seen the experience of suffering? We know there is the experience of suffering, mental stress, mental entanglement, mental weight, due to the wanting or not liking or being disconnected. So these are the three roots of the suffering, greed, anger, and delusion, all the ways the mind energetically is leaning forward, wanting something to happen, all the ways the mind is leaning back, pushing things away, wanting things to be done, all the ways the mind is trying to disconnect, to not be here. That's what we mean by delusion. So these are the three ways we find ourselves in hell. So in the context of this talk the Buddha gave on the ways of establishing mindfulness, the first thing he taught was mindfulness of the body as a training ground. Like when we take up the experience of breathing in, knowing the experience of breathing in, breathing out, we're gathering or strengthening the qualities of mind that can see things clearly as they are, so that when the mind naturally, it's not a mistake, when the mind naturally gets distracted, basically takes the bait of some memory, some sensation, and begins to proliferate around it, then the mindfulness is steady enough, balanced enough, to see the birth of a suffering being. You know, Because in the moment of just being aware of the breath coming in and the breath going out, there is no suffering being there. There is just touching, right, the air coming in and touching the nostrils, and the knowing of touching, knowing that experience of touching, touching and the knowing of touching, or more generally feeling the vibration of sensation in the body and knowing it. That's it. That's all there is. And if it seems like more, that means the mind's already entangled. So then we can notice that. And then the dissolution of the entanglement. And this is interesting. I mean, we have to be... This information is really important to comprehend, even on this intellectual level, so that it can be brought to bear when we're sitting. Because we really want to see the birth and death of suffering, being the one who's suffering, and then how that disappears. I mean, think about how many times we've been caught in mental stress in our lives. I mean, it's got to be close to an infinite number of times. Because it had happens at such great frequency. But all of those times have ceased. They arose, you know, that particular experience of getting tight about something, this or that, and the proliferation and the weight or um, difficulty of that proliferation. And then it ended in order to have the next drama, right? So, but we have systematically missed seeing the birth and death of these dramas. So then every time the drama happens again, it, in a superficial way or in a distracted way, it just feels like the same thing. So one of the reasons we have such a strong conviction 
in the sense of self is that we've missed the birth and death of it. And so it's just like, oh yeah, this is me again. It just feels like there's the continuity of me struggling to be a happy person or to get through life or you know, whatever, whatever that chronic feeling we have about ourselves is. It feels static or feels like the same. Day by day, moment by moment, decade by decade. But when we refine the attention to mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of the breath, mindfulness of postures, mindfulness of physical activities, these are the first three instructions the Buddha gives. Mindfulness of breath, mindfulness of postures, mindfulness of activities. Where he says, Practitioners, when walking, one knows I'm walking. When standing, one knows I'm standing. When sitting, one knows I'm sitting. When lying down, one knows I'm lying down. Or one knows accordingly, however one's body is disposed. Again, practitioners, when going forward and returning, one acts clearly knowing, clearly comprehending. When looking ahead or looking away, one acts clearly knowing. When flexing or extending one's limb, one acts clearly knowing. When wearing one's clothes and carrying whatever one's carrying, one acts clearly knowing. When eating, drinking, consuming food and tasting, one acts clearly knowing. When defecating and urinating, one acts clearly knowing. When walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking and keeping silent, one acts clearly knowing. So, the context, especially the context of the body doing whatever it's doing, and when the body's not doing too much, then it's useful to use something more refined like the breath moving in the body, right? Because it strengthens the quality of attention. One of the, the great things about the breath as an anchor, as a training ground, is as we get, as the mind and body becomes more calm, the, the breath becomes more subtle. So the quality of attention required to track the breath as it actually is moment by moment has to become equally refined. So one way or another we're training, you know, through one means or another we're training in ardency and clearly knowing, tracking the experience and discerning the birth and death of suffering. This is the fruit of that moment-to-moment knowing of the body, is we get to see the birth. So even though we're tracking the body, naturally when the mind gets involved in suffering and mental stress and reacting or resisting or struggling in some way, that's going to be the predominant experience arising, and the attention will just know that. I mean, the interesting thing is, knowing the body or knowing the breath, what is the distance between knowing the breath coming in, for example, and knowing what the mind is doing? They're both happening in the same place. The knowing of the breath and the knowing of the mind, they're not actually in different locations. Conventionally speaking, we think about them in different locations in the same way we think of the sensation in my toe like if, I, if you squeeze your toe now or you squeeze, pinch some part of your body, you know, and then squeeze your ear, you think the sensation of this pressure here and the contact down in my toe, that they're in different locations. 
But actually look. Notice two sensations in your body. And it, to make it easy, touch yourself in two places. And close your eyes because that will help loosen the image you have in your mind about the body. And just feel the two sensations. Are they in different locations? No, the sensations are right there, being known. They're not two places. And this is the same with all presently arising experiences of body and mind. They're being known here, right here, in the mind and the heart, or whatever. It doesn't matter what we call the here. But they're not two different places. So if we're tracking the body, or the breath in the body, or the movements of the body, the sitting of the body, the standing of the body, the walking of the body, if we've cultivated this steady, honest, present moment awareness of the body, and the mind begins to do what the mind does, the thinking mind does what the thinking mind does, and concocts the feeling of being insecure, or ashamed, or feeling better than, or comparing oneself to another, or worrying about the future, or lamenting the past, then that's going to be known in that same even, steady, honest way, the non-identified way. Oh, it's just thought being known. And either that will be enough, it will immediately fall away, or if that pattern, that mental pattern has enough momentum, it might continue to blossom even though it's being seen with mindfulness as just a thought. And that's where you can see how the you know suffering being and all of a sudden in a few seconds there's a suffering being there. And then after a few more seconds of clear mindful awareness, it will cease like so many other dramas have ceased because that's what dramas do. They arise when the causes and conditions are there and then they cease. We get all worked up about this problem. The trouble is, in normal life, we're all worked up about something, and then we notice something over here, and we forget that we're all worked up about that, and we never catch how that whole thing we were all worked up about fell away. I mean, how many nights have we been up in the middle of the night worrying about death, or worried about, you know, whatever you worry about in the middle of the night? And then we fall asleep. But that whole thing that felt so heavy and real, it just ceased. You know, and then we were sort of watching the clip from The Daily Show or, you know, completely engaged in something else, whatever it might be, putting our boots on or drinking our coffee. So with the mindfulness really is strengthened by the continuity because it's only when there's continuity that moment to moment to moment to moment relaxed, interested awareness that we get to see how it is that the suffering being is born and how it is that it ceases. The Buddha considers mindfulness of the body our best friend. So last week I talked a lot about mindfulness of the breath, but now we can extend this through the day. What we learn tracking the breath, we'll learn everywhere. Remember the last two instructions I gave last week for those who were here with the breath is breathing in, knowing the whole body, breathing out, knowing the whole body, and then breathing in, calming the body, 
breathing out, calming the body. But this is true with all the different postures that we can be aware of, which lends itself to, like I said earlier, to daily life practice, where when you're walking from the car to the office or to the store or wherever, you're just aware that walking's like this. When walking, just walk. And in that continuity of awareness, that walking, lifting, placing is being known, that physicality of moving is being known. In that context, there will be this, uh, this simplicity, evenness of mind. It's, we call it samadhi, right? <coughs> Where the mind has the balance of clarity and relaxation. And the, the great thing about samadhi is anything that disturbs the samadhi, that balance of mind, will stand out. And that's exactly what we need. We need to see what gets in the way of ease. We don't need to be afraid of what gets in the way of ease. We actually have to see it. There's no way to be free. There's no way for this practice to develop without the ease in your mind, in your heart, being challenged by experiences in life. So in a way... We need the ease first, so that's why often in practice we emphasize the different techniques that support tranquility, calm. But then with that experience of calm, we do things like we sit for a long time. And then it isn't long, depending on how your body's doing, before you start to feel physical pain and not and want to move, right? It seems like a setup. So there you are, maybe the first few minutes, it feels good. You know, being living a busy life, it feels nice to sit down, right? And especially if you don't force yourself to sit in a way that's uncomfortable for yourself. You sit down, maybe you close your eyes, that's kind of nice too. Minds us of being asleep. You know, and we've consciously released any unnecessary tension in the body. We've taken a couple of deep breaths, and it feels nice for the first few minutes. And then after 10 or 15 minutes, you know, the body wants to move, and it, it can be excruciating for a lot of us after 20 minutes, 25 minutes. And some people, some of us sit for an hour, and it can get really intense. The standing joke in the tradition is one of the famous teachers in this lineage is a woman named Deepama, an Indian woman, great, great meditator and saint. She died in the, I think in the early 90s. But anyway... She once told Joseph Goldstein, one of my teachers and great Buddhist author and teacher, um, said, Joseph, you should sit for three days. And she didn't mean like go on a three-day retreat. She meant you sit down and you get up three days later or something like that. It was, it was more, than, more than a 24-hour period. And, uh, and Joseph kind of, you know, was like, what? <laughs> and she said, don't be lazy. <laughs> but the idea is to be continuous in our practice so that we see what challenges the mind, what challenges the ease or steadiness of the mind. Because that is the birth of suffering. Because suffering begins when the mind starts to take something personally. You know, there's unpleasant sensations right at the beginning, but we just don't, it's just not personalizing it. It's okay. But at some point, it starts to feel personal, like 
this this isn't going to go away. I got to deal with this. You see, now we're starting to take it personal. We're starting to have an idea of me who's got to sit with this pain for the next 29 minutes. And what am I going to do? And it's probably going to get worse. And I should take up yoga. See, all of these are very personal ideas. I wish I had started yoga when I was younger. Or wish I hadn't given it up. So all of these little hooks where the mind starts to personalize thought, sensation, sound, sight. And it isn't long in doing this practice where the mind begins to distill that the birth of suffering always entails taking things personally. When the mind isn't taking anything personally, there's no suffering. When the mind takes something personal, there's always some tension. Even like when our sit is going really well and there's a lot of calm and a lot of steadiness and we personalize that, we've just spoiled it a little, if not a lot. Taking the calm you're experiencing personally is a layering on some mental tension on top of that calm. And if the mind is steady enough, it will see it. It will see, oh, this doesn't feel good. This isn't right. This isn't helpful. And the mind, in just seeing it, the mind will naturally, organically stop taking it personally. It isn't. It doesn't even require you to intercede. I got to get rid of that, because that would be another layering of tension on the mind. Being the one who has to get rid of the taking it personally. So it's just leaving things alone. And how do we leave things alone? We follow the instructions our teacher, the Buddha, gave us. Pay attention to the breath. Breathing in is like this. Breathing out is like this. Pay attention to the movements of the body. So in the middle of a sit, that means if you make an adjustment, know that moving the body is like this. Sensations are being known. The sensations of moving the body are being known. It's just these sensations being known. If it feels really good to stretch out your leg, notice the pleasantness. Ah, pleasantness is being known. The real problem is we don't take up the instructions. It's so easy to hear this. I'm speaking from personal experience. It's so easy to hear the instructions, to read the instructions, to hear myself giving the instructions over and over and over again and yet not following the instructions. But if we simply train the mind in tracking present moment experience and using what's easy, like the body, the breath moving in the body, the walking, the stretching, just the physicality so we can practice all day long. We've got the grounding, the the grounding, the continuous awareness of how the body is. Then we'll learn so much about the mind how suffering arises and how it ceases. And this is really the essence of what the the Buddha taught. He taught that suffering arises and suffering ceases. And the cause of suffering is not knowing that it arises and ceases. That's amazing, right? The only reason human beings suffer is because we don't understand it. We don't understand that it arises and ceases, that it has causes for its arising, 
and it has causes for its cessation. And if we simply understood the causes for mental stress arising and mental stress ceasing, the mind would no longer engage in that activity. Not because you personally are stopping yourself from doing that, but because the cause for the mind doing that is the not understanding it, the not, the not seeing it. Once it sees it, it just doesn't do it. Remember, the letting go of this habit has to be an impersonal process too. And as an impersonal process, it just needs certain causes and conditions, which is the seeing clearly of how this, all, this process of getting tight happens. It's really amazing how being mindful of the body, grounding in the experience of the body, taking it as a really profound refuge, like as a teacher, the, the continuity of mindfulness of the body is our teacher. Literally, it's what we should get down on our knees and bow to, not the statue of the Buddha or some great teacher, you know, like the Dalai Lama or whoever you might want to you feel so grateful for their teachings. The real teacher is the lived experience in this dynamic of body and mind. I'm teaching a workshop on Saturday where I'm going to talk about this, uh, what the Buddha talks about, independence, like becoming independent, self-reliant with the teachings, which is the goal of practice, not to be dependent on a teacher or teachings, but independence is having heard the teachings, having applied the teachings, we realize, it's an insight, we realize that everything I need to know is right here. And the tools I need to know this are right here too. They just need to be strengthened. And how do we strengthen the tools, the qualities of mind? We recognize them. We recognize that the mind can be interested, can be alert, energized, and joyful in the practice. We realize that the mind can just allow the experience to be, can be relaxed and tranquil and still and steady and equanimous with one's lived experience. These are the factors of awakening. They're already there. One of the, uh, it's very, I love this part of the tradition. One of the easiest ways back in the day of the Buddha and the nuns and monks and lay people who practiced with the Buddha, back in the day, the, when somebody was in a really bad place, like dying or <clears throat> had a bad injury, bad sickness, what they would do is they'd have a friend go to them and do the repeat the teaching on the seven factors of awakening, basically talking about these natural qualities of mind that when in balance, the mind sees things as they are. And people would hear the song, the chant of the seven factors of awakening, and they'd feel so much better. So that's sort of interesting. Like, as I was saying, that these qualities of mind, this way of being where we're mindful in this continuous way, seeing how things unfold in a natural way, learning how to let things go, to let suffering cease, in a natural way, this is the most beautiful thing. This is what's actually sacred. Not some idea of heaven or some idea of 
whatever you might imagine is sacred, because those are just ideas here in the mind being known. The real essence, you know, what's being missed is how it is that suffering is constructed and how it is that that falls apart. That's what's being missed. And that's our teacher. And that's a source of real gratitude when we realize it's right here. I think this is, you know, I've been practicing now for over 30 years regularly, almost every day. And uh, in a formal way, probably every day in an informal way. And I think that one of the great fruits of that dedicated steady practice is whenever there is suffering, it isn't long before, on some level, my mind realizes that it's optional. I may not be able to immediately uh, realize the cessation of that mental stress or tightness or whatever. But relatively quickly, I realize, the mind realizes that it's not necessary. It's, it's not like uh, um, inevitable. Suffering is not inevitable. There is suffering, but the uh, inevitability of it or the mind grasping it is optional. And it's just a matter of allowing the causes and conditions that allows for the cessation of that stress. It's just a matter of time before those causes and conditions are there. And being awake to that whole process is what we can do. That's how we engage the practice, is deepening one's understanding of how it is that this experience of suffering arises and how it is that it ceases. And just imagine, as I said at the beginning of the talk, how many times each day this happens. So there are so many opportunities to see very clearly, blow by blow, how suffering arises, blow by blow, how suffering ceases in the mind. Mental stress arising, mental stress ceasing. And it breaks our heart to realize how many of these opportunities we've missed. We only need to see it once really, really clearly to be free. Because the mind will immediately integrate and generalize what it sees. Because any one way that it arises is symbolic of all the ways that suffering arises. It's not like it arises in all these unique ways. Suffering arises always in one way. And I mentioned, you know, we have some clues from the Buddha. It's that habit of the mind taking things personally, and in particular, the mind takes the feeling tone personally. It's the pleasantness in the moment or the unpleasantness in the moment that the mind is strongly habitualized to take it personally. I'm feeling the pleasantness. I like that pleasant feeling. I'm feeling the unpleasantness. I don't like that unpleasantness. But imagine being sort of open-hearted, clear, undefended, like porous to any pleasant or unpleasant feeling. Just not holding back, but just letting the pleasant and unpleasant feelings of life happen. If there's something we can do, well then do it, you know, to support the 
you know, that pleasant feeling lasting, if there's something we can do to um, make the unpleasant feeling go away, there's nothing wrong with it. But we're, as long as the unpleasant feeling is there, there's no tightening up around it, completely undefended. So the next time you stub your toe, if you want to put ice on the toe, great. But all of the pain that is arising in your stubbed toe, practice being completely porous, undefended. Just let the painful sensations move. The next time you have a really pleasant experience, mental pleasant experience or physical pleasant experience, practice not tightening up around it at all. Just let it move. Knowing that it's going to come and go, but really let it move. Let it come in. Let it touch the heart and keep moving. In no way freeze up, tighten up around the pleasantness. This is how we learn from our experiences of watching the body, knowing the body, and knowing how suffering comes and goes. I would imagine that you have experiences in your own practice you might want to share tonight with the group or questions about the talk tonight. We have about 10 minutes. Yeah, Anne. Um, the way I experience suffering sometimes is through energy. And so I, I think I said I was having some issues visiting the prisons. Like I was feeling sort of energy things that I was having trouble digesting. And then um, just the being around people dying of feeling like, wow, there's some residual something. And so I guess my question is, um, it doesn't come to me as a thought. So, and, and I even didn't, it didn't even occur to me that was exactly why, like even looking for a reason. Oh, maybe it's just because it's been cold for a lot of days or, you know, it, I, I thought, oh, right, like, yeah, I feel like I'm dying. Oh, I've been visiting people. Like, it, it's slow to me to kind of find a mental construct to describe why. So, anyway, I don't even know if that story is important, but the question has to do with the... Uh, the energy, like like the, the the suffering doesn't feel like I'm in charge of it. Like even when I name, oh, I think it might be coming from there, it doesn't feel... Um, but you have to see that there's two things there. Like there's two things there. There's the energetic feeling, which might be quite unpleasant. Yeah. And then there's anything the mind does around that unpleasant energetic feeling. So you're absolutely right. There are, there's a great diversity of unpleasant experience in life. And often the more subtle the unpleasant feeling, the more difficult it is to work with. You know, as opposed to like having a lot of physical pain. It might be relatively easy to work with compared to um, a deep uneasiness of the heart that's more subtle. But, and there's nothing we can do about the diversity of physical and mental painful experiences. So I'm not talking about eliminating pain or the unpleasantness of life. I'm talking about a radical change in how the mind relates to the unpleasantness, the normal, inevitable unpleasantness of physical and mental experience. And the very ordinary, inevitable, pleasant mental and physical experience, and all the neutral experience of mind and body. So we're going to have this great spectrum of feeling 
pleasant to unpleasant, right? And that's just comes with life. And the suffering is whenever the mind concocts resistance or tension around feeling instead of just letting feeling move. So this is where why we need to practice because when we're sitting in a relatively safe way, safe place, we're still having lots of feelings, like the feeling of boredom, the unpleasantness of boredom, or the unpleasantness of body sensations, or a pleasantness of the mind being calm, or just the pleasantness of not having to do a lot of stuff for once, just the peacefulness of putting things down for a while. So there's pleasant and unpleasant and neutral feelings, and the mind is you know, using the the momentum it gets from being with the body moment by moment, then naturally from time to time the feeling tone will be predominant and we'll notice the neutral feeling, the pleasant feeling, the unpleasant feeling, and we'll learn, because we were leaving the body, we were knowing the body but leaving it alone, knowing the breath but leaving it alone, we'll know the feeling tone and practice just leaving it alone. Yeah. So being... So, but to leave it alone, and you have to go into it, especially with unpleasant feeling. So that unpleasant feeling that might be triggered from being around uh, Anne volunteers at hospice. So that unpleasant feeling, or she volunteers in the prisons too. So the unpleasant feelings that might have gotten triggered through those experiences, because they're unpleasant, and you know naturally the tendency, the habit will be to withdraw then you practice leaning in because that's the only way you'll know you're not clinging, you're not resisting, is by willing this willingness to be even closer to it. In the same way with uh, when something's really pleasant, you can imagine it going away. That's the only way you'll be able to see whether you're holding to it. You know, so when something really beautiful is happening, just remember, just in a quiet, non-judging way, just remember this is going to go away. And if you get, if you notice the tightness, and you know, oh, the heart is grasping this. It doesn't want it to go away. Oh, so I can look at that. I can see that. Oh, that's mental stress. That's unnecessary mental stress. Thanks for sharing that, Anne. Their thoughts or comments about the practice? Questions? I have a question. Yeah. Um, Say your name. Actually, uh, Steve, would you shut the ventilation switch off so we can hear better? It's the top switch above the thermostat. Thanks. <coughs> One thing I've noticed recently is that when I'm using my breath as kind of the anchor for my focus, that, well, like, at the beginning of the meditations, oftentimes you'll, you'll request that you take a couple of deep breaths, and then you'll say, you know, now let your breathing resume naturally. I don't know if I'm being super OCD or something, but whenever I'm using my breath as my anchor, I have a hard time letting my body just breathe naturally. I feel like I'm so aware of my breathing that I'm controlling, micromanaging every little breath, and I don't know how to kind of let go of that. And then if I start thinking about it a lot, then I think, well, when am I breathing naturally? What is breathing naturally? How do I get back to breathing? <laughs> so that's the birth of a suffering being. <laughs> so, yeah, well, if you, uh, 
first, just to normalize the experience, because I bet, you know, I certainly, I definitely relate to what you're saying. Even now, after 30 years of practice, a lot of it with the breath, I totally get that experience of the breath. But I don't have a problem with my breath being tight like I used to or at times have. And so just because the breath feels controlled, just because the mind seems neurotically involved with the breath, doesn't mean you need to do anything about the breath. See, at some point, you have to leave it alone. And what what the mind tends to want to believe is that I'll leave it alone when it becomes natural. You know, when the breath is the way I expect the breath to be, then I'll leave it alone. But see, leave it alone means leave it alone. Even if it feels controlled, even if it's tight or erratic or whatever it's doing, you just let let it be alone. And it might require you to, and this is just in words, step back a little bit further so that not only are you knowing the um, sort of stiff or controlled breath going in and out, but you're noticing also the mental trip around the whole thing and the doubt around the whole thing. And you're just saying, yeah, that's all part of the breath coming in and out, this whole little dynamic as the breath comes in and this whole little dynamic of doubt and judgment or whatever controlling as the breath goes out and as the breath comes in. So that's one way to do it. The other is that some people just, it's less useful of an anchor. Generally speaking, the breath is a pretty good training anchor for most people. But for some people, there's just a lot of emotion that has gotten connected with the breathing process. Like, you know, people who've had asthma a lot or for whatever reason. And uh, then you might want to use a different anchor. For example, you could use your whole body. Now, the breath is still there, but you're not using it as the center of the attention. But, you know, just the sense of the uprightness of the body or whatever is predominant in the body could be your anchor. Another thing people use (coughs) is hearing. That can be an anchor. Not hearing a particular sound, but just... But probably, I'm guessing, because this is true for so many of us, that what you call the OCD tendency to really want to do it right or second-guess the object that the mind is knowing is going to happen regardless of what the anchor is. So you might just uh, be a little bit more spacious and forgiving about the mind being tight about the breath. And just recognize, oh yeah, that's just the mind being tight about the breath. Yeah. And remember, you don't have to feel it at the nostril. Sometimes, and I I know it's just a trick, but it it can really work. Sometimes the closer the, the point that you're using is to the brain, which is where we think the thinking is happening, the more the thinking gets involved. So you might want to feel the breath down in the belly, for example. Might be you, you could just experiment with the movement of the abdominal wall as the anchor for the breath. Or just generally feel it throughout the whole body instead of having a very specific location. Now, other people who tend to be really sleepy in practice, having a very specific refined location in the beginning can be quite useful. So it's just like medicine. You have to find a way of attending to the breath that is relatively easy for you. And you can experiment a little bit until you find that. Yeah. Uh, it has to be real quick. Just have a quick thought. Or do you want to check in after the class tonight? Yeah, I'm sure you want to get it. Okay, that sounds good.
So just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Just enough time to take a breath together. And appreciating this training and how many women and men have done this training over the centuries. They had busy lives in the same way that we do. Developed the practice, gained real insight, enough to share what they've learned. And now it's our turn. We've heard these teachings or to whatever degree inspired by them. So let's set them in motion set the causes for real peace and freedom in motion so that our practice becomes part of the causes and conditions of other people being free, being happy, being peaceful. So may this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.